Our text this morning is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. So if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and open to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians is six books to the right of the four Gospels. So it's close to the end of our Bible, close to the end of the New Testament. Well, my name is Trent Hunter. I'm a pastoral assistant here at Desert Springs Church. Um, my wife and I, Christy, moved here from the Midwest uh, back in August, and it's been a pleasure to get to know so many of you and to serve with you and among you. And it's certainly an honor this morning to open God's word with you. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this. I, therefore, a prisoner of, for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying, he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles and prophets and evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That, of course, is an appropriate text for Ministry Fair Sunday. Well, it sure is a tough thing living on the planet. I think you would agree. And for all kinds of reasons, there are tornadoes on the planet. There are hurricanes on the planet. Cats are on the planet. (laughs) Sweat, thorns, thistles. But the toughest thing about living on the planet, no doubt, is living here with other people. Ever since the fall of humankind into sin, when Adam rebelled against his loving and gracious maker who gave him a command that he was to trust God in obeying, ever since that happened, all matter and any manner of insanity and recklessness is possible in any and at every level of human relationship and interaction. Nations between nations, families, families, and people to people. We are capable of great feats as God's image bearers, 
made to reflect his glory, reflecting something of that glory as those made in his image. But brokenness is the pervading reality that characterizes human relationships. Remove the rule of law and see what happens. Even the greatest occasions of unity generally fall among, along ethnic, socioeconomic, and lines of common interest. Nations by themselves, groups together with a common political interest. Surely sports teams talk about being unified. We're for people like us, against people not like us. That's our impulse, not in every relationship. But if you read the news and you read history, that is the story that it tells. So unity is not our thing. But most of us seem to think it's a good thing. If you get on Amazon and type in unity and search under books, you're going to come up with a few. Some books like this, the transcendent unity of all religions. Then there are books on how to help people get along for a common goal. Management type books like this. Collaboration, how leaders avoid the traps, create unity, and reap big results. Probably a helpful book with good insight into what people are like. And it's written and it sells because unity is something that is not natural to us. Then there's everything else like the book, True Unity, Willing Communication Between Horse and Human. Uh, Someone buy that book and bring it on a Sunday. I'd like to see it. I won't buy it. Much of the stuff on the subject, to be sure, is about how people have gotten along and how people can get along. Entire industries are built to answer that question. And entire legal structures are constructed to help us keep relationships intact and provide safe channels in and out of them. Well, the Bible teaches that brokenness in our relationships with one another is from brokenness inside each of us. It's in here is the problem. And that brokenness inside each of us is because of a brokenness in our relationship with our maker, all of us born sinners, But in the gospel of Jesus Christ, God is uniting a people to himself from every tribe and tongue and nation to be united with him. Unity among God's people is a great evidence that we have the spirit of God and it's a sign that his kingdom has come and that the new creation has dawned. So this morning we're going to look and we have read one of the most probably explicit and specific passages about the nature of our relationships with one another as God's people, as his church. We're going to drill around that passage and look around the Bible a little bit to see as much as we can see that is there to understand how it is we ought to live together. And with God's help, we'll see that unity in the church is an urgent thing. Paul urges us to this because it is a display of God's power and the gospel's power in us. All right, so first point. The reason for our unity is the gospel. Let's read together verses 1 through 3 again. Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity in the bond of peace. Now we're, we're framing this passage and the whole sermon up with the theme of unity because although we said a bunch of things here, the next 13 verses are about unity. In fact, you can see humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another in love as essential ingredients that make a thing like close relationships possible. It's a description of how we ought to be able to describe our church, a, a people who are gracious and gentle and patient, who bear with one another, forgive one another, who are unified in the spirit, in the bond of peace. The second word in our text is the word therefore. And 
It's going to shoot us back to the first three chapters of the book, and it's going to help us understand more about what this calling is to which we are to walk worthy. We're to walk worthy of the calling to which we've been called. What is that? First three chapters of the book of Ephesians. Ephesians can be cut into two parts. Chapters one through three, we might call the indicatives, what is true of us. Chapters four through six are the imperatives, how we are to live. Ryan went over this a few weeks back and did a, just a great job of explaining its importance. He said, take these two words, indicatives, imperatives, and put them in your back pocket and pull them out whenever you read your Bible. Well, we're reading the Bible and we're going to pull them out. We need them this morning and anytime we read the, read the Bible. The implication of the order of indicative or what's true before what should happen and who we should be and what we should do is simple, but it is profound. We do not obey God in order to earn his favor, always wondering if we have been good enough, working so that he might like us enough to reward us with his presence. God has lavished his grace on us as undeserving sinners so that we are accepted in Christ because of Christ's obedience on our behalf and because he died to pay the penalty for the sins that we've committed. And it's from this position of acceptance and with the help of the Spirit that we have the power to obey these commands. Otherwise, we are helpless. That's a story of the Old Testament, isn't it? Before Christ came and died, in the Spirit, all their failures, the law was given so that we would fail, so that we could see that we fail without the Spirit, without new hearts, without Christ. Religion, we've heard it said, says obey in order to be accepted by God. In the gospel, we are accepted by him, and therefore we obey. And this is what sets Christianity apart from the world's various religions, and really any belief system at all. And that we are not working in order to be accomplished, in order to achieve. But God in Christ has worked for us, has accomplished, has died for all of our failures so that we can be accepted. It makes no sense. It's foolishness to those who are perishing, says Paul, but it's the wisdom of God. And he is glorified when he shows grace to those who don't deserve anything of his kindness. And in Christ dying on a cross, we do not deserve for him to die on a cross for us. We deserve to be in his place. He took ours. And so the gospel transforms us in that way. So I hope that that's you trusting this morning in Christ on a cross and then buried and then risen and ascended now the right hand of God. And if it is, then you and I are being urged by this text here to live in a manner worthy of the calling, this calling to which we've been already called. The work of Christ is done. We're right with God. We have been called out of death, uh, this book says, first three chapters, we've been made alive in Christ. We've been called out from under God's wrath and we've been adopted as his children. We've been called out of sin and into good works that he's prepared beforehand in order for us to do. So that's the gist of chapters one through three. It's our calling. We're God's people purchased by Christ's blood. Topic this morning is unity. Paul hits it in chapter four. Let's see what verses chapters one through three say about unity. Ephesians 1, 9, and 10. Through Christ, God is making known to us the mystery of his will as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and on earth. The world and the universe is a broken place. And there's dissonance between its maker and itself. And God is uniting all things and fixing the problem in Jesus. Well, on that theme, he also addresses us specifically. Ephesians 2, 11 through 19. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Listen for this separation, bringing near language. Remember at that time you were separated from Christ, having no hope 
without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you ones who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, creating in himself one new man. And he came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Strangers and aliens, now fellow citizens. One new man, he says. A new humanity. The old race under Adam, Christ comes as a second Adam. And those who are in him, a part of a new humanity, the Bible teaches. And so Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. So unity is already a reality. It's a matter of living like it. And we're to walk in a manner worthy of the unity purchased by Christ's blood. Well, using those qualities, humility, gentleness, mentioned in the first few verses to maybe get at what it takes to create unity. Let's, let's think about these things. God humbled himself in the person of the Son and became a man, submitting even to death on a cross. So we can be humble in our relationships with one another. God condescended from heaven to become a baby. We can humble ourselves before one another. He was gentle with us when we deserved the harshest of treatment. We can be gentle with one another. He was patient with us, allowing us time to repent. We can be patient with one another and bear with one another. Love covers a multitude of sins. Are you eager for this? Are you eager for this to be the way that we would talk about and describe our fellowship here at Desert Springs Church? I think it reflects much of what's here and we always need more of this encouragement. Well, using, let's see, the gospel's power is displayed in our unity because the gospel was invented to solve the problem of brokenness and it gives us the power to ask forgiveness and to forgive the kinds of things that cause for brokenness in our relationships. The room is full of broken relationships, no doubt, because it's full of sinners. I'm one of them. Hopefully, this text will address us in those relationships today. All right, so the first, the reason is the calling that we have, and it is the gospel. That's why unity is called for here. Well, the source of our unity is the Trinity. Let's look to the next several verses, verses four through six. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Well, the first thing Paul has to say in explaining what he means by unity, besides saying it, is something to do with God. He talks about God and what God's nature is. The reason God calls a people to himself and not merely people to himself is because who he is in himself. He is the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit, united as one, three persons, one God. In verses four through six, there are seven realities mentioned that all either reference the Trinity or uh, are acts, things that the Trinity, members of the Trinity perform. Remember, in the first chapter of Ephesians, the Trinitarian nature of the work was clear. In the first chapter, we see that the Father predestines and adopts. He does so through the Son, whose blood provides for redemption and forgiveness of sins, who then sends the Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. 
Trinity is not flat. They're doing different things. So it honors the Trinity when we honor the Trinity in our reading of the Bible. Well, here we see that there is one body and one spirit. It is through the Spirit's work that we become members of Christ's body. Look with me at 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jesus Christ is the Lord referred to. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. There is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And in Ephesians 1, Paul says that our hope, the hope that he talks about here, the one hope, our hope is bound up in this Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, God's Son. Ephesians 1, 11 and 12, in him we have obtained an inheritance that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Jesus is the object of our faith. He is our hope. He is our only hope. It is bound up in him. And of the Father, it says there is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. God is supreme. He is great. There is none like him. He is the only God. All three of these members of the Trinity appear together all over the Bible, in the New Testament especially, uh, because they are each God. That's why they show up everywhere. They planned from eternity to form a people who would reflect the oneness of their own relationship. And our unity as God's people is as unbreakable as their unity in the Godhead. Now, in some ways, we were the institution of the church, if you look throughout history, is maybe the institution that is one of, certainly one of the most enduring, uh, but with as many little pieces and parts and little gatherings and different names, isn't it? It's important to remember that there are different traditions, cultural expressions. God has made humanity different, and so it might make sense that there would grow up different ways of worshiping him, different types of music, different ways of gathering. The specifics on how we conduct our gatherings are different. And wherever there are gathered people who believe in this one God, in this one Lord, Jesus Christ, there is no other name under heaven by which men may be saved. And in this spirit, and in this inerrant, infallible word, we have an outpost of God's kingdom, a taste of heaven, and the people of God. Whatever the building looks like, whatever their songs are like, and however their gatherings are conducted. And there are reasons why we may gather together in different networks. You think first order issues are those things that make us Christians, make us right with God, bring us into his universal body. Second order issues might be those things that make it just efficient to meet separately. We conduct church life differently because of the way, because of our finitude and the freedom that we have here to do that. Um, Meet and gather in different places and different networks um, for the kingdom and for gospel work. But as long as we have first order issues in common, we believe in this one God, we ought to be mighty cooperative. And this church is non-denominational, but we don't stand on an island. We are a network with churches of numerous denominations in this city and throughout the country through networks like the Gospel Coalition, through Acts 29, a church planting network. And I think that's a good healthy sign. There should be unity because of the Trinity at a local level, but certainly at a global level as we look to preach the gospel to the nations. There are third order issues that uh, you see things a little differently on the ground here and still meet and worship without any trouble. Father, Son, and Spirit, our unity is unbreakable 
as the Trinity's unity. So our understanding of unity starts with our view of God. The gospel's power is displayed in the church when the redeemed sinners reflect the oneness of the triune God in their own relationships with one another. And that happens and should happen here. So that's the source of our unity, the Trinity. The paradigm for our unity is the body. Everyone should be familiar with what a body is. I think everyone has a body. Of all the images that God gives us in the New Testament to help us rightly conceive of the church, this is the one that gets the most ink. It gets several big paragraphs. In this book itself, we've got, what, 16 verses almost, I think 13 of them devoted to this imagery. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Peter 4, and Ephesians 4. Remember that. Those are the body gift passages. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Peter 4, Ephesians 4. We're in Ephesians 4. We're going to be moving in and out of all these passages this morning. Gets a lot of ink. We can think of a number of images already in Ephesians that we've already been given to understand ourselves. We're God's workmanship. We're his handiwork. We're a new humanity, a new race whose head is Adam, the one we have in common together. He's transforming us, who has saved us, who's brought us to God. But this seems to be Paul's favorite when it comes to describing the actual relationships of people on people and the daily minglings of God's people in his church. In the verses uh, we've just read, we saw the word one a lot, one God, one Lord, one hope. Now we're going to see the word each. There's a contrast here. What the body imagery does is it also allows us to see how diversity contributes to unity. Your body is one body, but it wouldn't be if it was just a whole pile of fingers it would be a pile of fingers. You're, a, you're one body made up of many parts. Let's read together Ephesians, from Ephesians 4, verse 7, and then 11 through 12. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Verse 11. And he gave the apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up of the body of Christ. Now let's look at verses 15 through 16. He teases this illustration out a little bit. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Understanding this diversity has a number of implications for us just right on the surface, doesn't it? Authority. Who do we report to in this room? Every one of us, it doesn't matter what we're doing. It's not an end to ourselves. It's not Lord over anyone else in this room. We report to Christ. And we have a very good head on our shoulders. And he's told us exactly what to do. We report to Christ who is our head. Interdependence is another thing. So authority, we obey Christ Every word he says is good and true and for our glory and our jo- for his glory and our joy. Then interdependence, we're dependent each one on another like the parts of a body. That's how he's composed us in part so that none of us can think too much of ourselves. None of us can get along without the rest of us. We're a body. So the body imagery invests us with great importance, doesn't it? It dignifies each of us. There's no unimportant or useful person in this room, but it also puts us in our place. Paul's using the image in different ways pastorally in different letters. Let's go to Romans 12. Romans 12, 3 through 5, he writes this. 
warn everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, to be real, each according to the measure of the faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. This, for the Spirit, in one Spirit, we're all baptized into one body. What kinds of people? Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of the same Spirit. It doesn't matter what your qualifications are outside this building. From hard work or otherwise, social status, the things that you have, the house that you go home to, and the car that you drive. We all meet together as those who are found in Christ. Found in Christ. And that's the thing that makes us what we are and who we are. That's right. Wherever there is, whatever is true is outside of us, the true of us outside of these walls, the only thing that matters here is who we are in Jesus. There's no partiality with God, rich or poor. There are no top dogs in the church. There's structure here and roles more prominent, some less than others. There's only love and service. Jesus himself came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Let's tease this out just a little bit. When was the last time your ear was upset at your foot? Just think with me for a minute. Or when your right arm felt eclipsed by the similar giftedness and therefore competition of the left arm? Scan the news your whole life and you will never find an incident of a right arm attacking a, attacking a left arm or the other way. You'll never find an incident of any part of anyone's body ever giving up from exhaustion because the eye gave it an evil eye in a fit of jealousy and rage. I would be totally annoyed with that kind of a body in a constant fit of competition and jealousy and glory hogging and competition ladder climbing. But that's not a problem for me because for the, actually, it is the case that my head controls my body. I decide what goes where and what does what and all of them seem to get along just fine. All of my body parts. And I like them all. They're all great. And I would be upset if any of them uh, disappeared or were cut off and I would pay great price even for my pinky toe Maybe the smallest and least seen of visible parts of a body, your organs being invisible, but most of them critical. I would do anything for my pinky toe to be reassigned. And so every part is important. And this is important for us to remember as a church planting church, a healthy body giving birth, planting a healthy body. And that requires at its center unity in the spirit and the bond of peace. The gospel's power is displayed in the church when our unity is characterized by allegiance to the authority of Christ and humble and loving submission to one another. All right, that's the paradigm for unity, the body. The image God gives us, we should use it. We should talk like we're a body. We should talk about our head, who is Christ, who is our authority, and encourage one another in submission to him. All right, four, the plan for our unity. There's a number of points under this point. God's plan for unity, we'll see how God means to grow us as a body and how he means to get glory from our unity as a body. Read with me verses 4 
in chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. So first, Christ ascends, which is what he does after he descends and lives in our place and dies for our sins and is raised from the dead so that we might be raised from the dead. He ascends to the right hand of the Father and he is not sleeping there. We do not think enough about the ascension of Christ. Rightly, we talk about the cross, rightly about the resurrection. The ascension is a big part of New Testament theology and our conception of who God is and what he has done for us in Christ. At his right hand is Jesus Christ, risen and exalted. In every major Christ passage in the Bible, you're going to get several verses on where he's at and what he's doing right now. He's not sleeping, though he is seated. He's ruling his people, finished with his work on the earth, gathering his people and interceding for them. In chapter 1, Paul wrote of Christ as being far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head of all things the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So it's no surprise that Christ's ascension figures in to chapter 4 here. The process of our unity begins when Christ ascended. Well, um, let's take a look at that passage again, though, because you may have caught something that you would normally just kind of keep reading over. A little perplexing, you got the point, and that is an Old Testament quotation. A lot of times these get us. It says, verse 7, by grace was, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. We keep reading and we get the point. He ascended and he distributes gifts. And as we keep reading, we understand where he's going. But it really does help to understand what's happening in these Old Testament quotations to get why he took the time to cite it, how he's seeing God's plan culminate in Jesus. This is a quote from Psalm 68. Psalm 68 is a rehearsal of God's mighty act in saving Israel from Egyptian slavery through the Exodus. When they landed at Sinai, Moses ascended the mountain and met with God, and the mountain shook. After victory, kings would ascend with their captives from victory and distribute the spoils. Christ, in this passage in Psalm 68, is asking God and calling God to do that again for his people. Christ is the victorious king who is ascending, who has ascended with those whom he won from battle. He has all the spoils from his victory and he is handing out the reward from what was the greatest and most significant victory conceivable. He has defeated sin, which holds no power over us and will be gone one day in the new creation. Death, which has no sting. We enter through it to meet God in his eternal presence and the devil who is no longer our father and whose day is coming. When we are with him, we are safe from these things. Paul saw in Psalm 68 the fulfillment of Israel's hopes and expectations in the person of Jesus Christ and in his ascension, victorious. We don't consider Christ's present position enough, but it's good too, isn't it? There it is. All right, so first Christ ascends. Then what does Christ do? We just kind of saw in that passage. He gives gifts. And when he ascended, he distributed gifts, things like kings after battle had something to give away, like a victory bonus, 
Christ extends, and then he has gifts to give to the church. They're not the things he collected, but he has gifts to give like a king would after battle. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, he's not specific as to what this grace is. Um, He goes on to talk about other gifts in a moment, but we know that God has given grace to individual believers, as he has here according to measure of Christ's gift, in the form of spiritual gifts. Shows up several times in the New Testament. There's something that happens upon conversion when God gives his spirit to us that he imparts to us a particular spiritual gift, ability, desire, passion, all that kind of makes the thing uh, in order to serve the common good of the body. It's part of his way of serving his people is through the giving of individual gifts. Look at Romans 12, 6 through 8, expands on a few of these. Paul says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Here's what we call spiritual gifts given by the Spirit of God. When Paul rattles these off, he really is more concerned with our humble diligent service to one another than he is in specific names or lists. So you get different lists in the Bible with different things included. However it is that you find your joy in serving and fruit in serving, there's probably a spiritual gift somewhere underneath that service. I encourage you to keep doing the same. And don't expect from every other person that they would have the same interest and desire of service that you have. It's part of what makes us a body. There are many important things that we ought to care about and do. And we each care about them in different proportion. And some of that is because God has meant for it to be so. We are each a reminder of other things that Christ cares about and exemplified in total, and that we will one day when we're with him perfectly. Our passage in Ephesians gets the most specific in mentioning Christ's gifts when it mentions specific kinds of people that Christ gives to his church. Let's read verse 11. And he gave the apostles the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. A list of kinds of people or offices, special offices that God has given to his church. The apostles were those first out of the gate, ran with Jesus and were commissioned by him to establish the church some 2,000 years ago. The prophets refer to those people who spoke in behalf of God, not as much telling the future as explaining reality as it is from God. The apostles and prophets, Paul says, are those on who are the foundation for the, on which the church is built, Christ, of course, being the cornerstone. Evangelists are those particularly used of God to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ and to lead God's people in doing the same. These are gifts to the church. Then there's shepherds and teachers, and generally we understand those to be the same thing, shepherds who teach. Those go together elsewhere in the New Testament, and they seem to go together here. Good substance of The equipping that shepherds and teachers do is in the ministry of the word. Other names for them around here, at least, we call them elders. Elder, pastor, shepherd are synonymous. Pastoring and shepherding are same activity. The imagery is taken from shepherding imagery. We use the word elder around here. Our elders are these gifts. And much of their job is in teaching. Let's read Paul's words to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, chapter uh, 4 verse 2, 
Preach the word, he says, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Now let's read Paul's word to Titus, another young minister, concerning the appointment of elders and their responsibility in shepherding to guard doctrine. See how closely shepherding and leadership is in the church tied with teaching. That's why it's important to have substantive, real, regular teaching in the body. He writes, Titus 1, 9 through 11, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict him. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain that they ought not to teach. Certainly the elders, shepherds are not to teach for shameful gain, not for personal gain, but for the edification and the encouragement and the help and the care of this body. And the elders we have at this church really do that. Now, I don't hold the office, so I'm in something of a good position to read a few passages about our responsibility to those who are shepherds. And by the way, the way you know you've got a shepherd is by looking at the qualifications for elders or shepherds in 1 Timothy 3 or there in Titus, looking at those along for a while, looking up long enough to be able to identify that somebody is that. We don't make them, we don't appoint them, we acknowledge them, and then entrust them with our leadership. We've got about seven or eight elders, shepherds, leading in our church, meeting every, by the way, I mean, I think this is great, meeting every Tuesday for like two or three hours to discuss the ministry, to pray together, and to read scripture together so that they can be strong in the word. So here's our responsibility to these great men. First Timothy 5, 17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So we should honor our leaders. Obedience, they never lead us wrong when they're leading us from Christ and his word. Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not groaning. It's possible to make your leaders groan in leading you and caring for your soul, isn't it? For that would be of no advantage to you. All right, so leaders equip. Third, or fourth, um, everyone serves. So Christ ascends, he gives gifts, leaders equip, everyone serves. Leaders are for equipping mostly. They do uh, work for sure doing, mostly equipping. He gave the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for works of ministry. If we read on to verses 15 and 16, we will see what that looks like, how everyone serving looks. Read it already, but here it goes. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This destroys any notion that ministry is for the hired or professionally trained or specially called. Our calling, all of us, if we are in Christ, is a calling to Christ. We've been called out of darkness into God's marvelous light, into the kingdom of his beloved son, Jesus. We belong to Christ. We're called to him, and that calling entails ministry. 
And in that way, by extension of our calling to Christ, all of us are called to ministry and to service. There are no idle bodies, if you will. Some are given to equipping, but everyone's given to ministry. If you're coming to church expecting and never serving, and it isn't because of a unique season of difficulty in which you are in spiritual life support, and there are those and others, then this word is confronting you right now. Equip the saints for works of ministry, every part contributing to the whole. Listen to 1 Corinthians 12 here as Paul expounds on this image and all body participation. 12, 14 through 26, he writes, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again can the head say to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow great, the greater honor. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. Now listen to this, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And so, that should describe our life together as a body. These very, this very physical and spiritual and emotional kind of interdependence explains so many of what we call the one another passages in the Bible. Do a search through the Bible for, quote, one another, and you'll come up with dozens of these things. Well, here are a number of them in the form of exhortations to you from God's word. Because we belong to one another, We are commanded to love one another with brotherly affection, to outdo one another in honoring one another and showing honor. We're commanded to love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows him. Because we belong to one another, we're to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. To be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. If possible, so far as it depends on you, to live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. We're to keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. We're to consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together like we are today, as is the habit of son, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near, to confess our sins to one another and to pray for one another, to exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of us may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and have an evil, unbelieving heart. We're all responsible to one another to make sure that we don't fall away in unbelief and to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, teaching and admonishing one another all of us to one another, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs as we did this morning with thankfulness in our hearts to God. It's really one of the ways that God builds his church and matures us is through the singing that we do on a Sunday. I'm encouraged every week. I'm sure you are by the words.
Well, you're acting like an amputated part, detached from the body, if you've never had to forgive anyone in this room. For real. Um, If you've never had to ask forgiveness, there should be people in this room that, but for the grace of God and their forgiveness, you couldn't look at. But you can because of Christ. And that forgiveness can happen here. Being forgiven is a great thing for the soul. And confessing your sin to someone else is too. And when we're close enough, we rub up against each other, cause trouble. Because of Christ, we can ask forgiveness from one another and receive it. We've never confessed sin to someone in this room. If we've never been comforted in great loss, if we've never had to bear someone's burden, if we've never comforted somebody else in great loss, we might be an amputated, acting like an amputated body part. If you don't have anyone to help carry your burdens, you need to step out and step into community here at Desert Springs. Tim Chester has a good book. Um, You Can Change. It's a good name. Spend some time in this passage. By the way, any good Christian book based on the Bible that talks about changing, it's going to spend time in passages like this. The church is part of God's plan for it. He says the church is better than a therapy group, a counselor's office, or a retreat center. And it sure ought to be because it's a heck of a lot more than, not merely, this is critical to it, meeting on Sunday, but it's meeting throughout the week and crossing over our lives like this, like a fabric, like a body. Body is the context for God-given change for sure. Church is not the place for perfect people. God didn't save perfect people, and we didn't become perfect when he saved us. It's a place for people who have confessed that Jesus Christ is the only perfect one, and the rest of us, but for God's help, are a wreck. And that we need one another, because God has given one another, God has given us each other for our own encouragement and help and comfort and burden-bearing and sin-confessing in this life. If this is you, I urge you, for your own sake, if you are acting amputated, and for the gospel's sake, to come out from the cold and into community at this church. Community groups are a way to do that, a way to mix it up with other believers on a weekly basis. Well, it may be that you're plugged in, and you are really plugged in, and you're signed up for all kinds of things around here, and you need to unplug, because that whole list of things we just read, that were commands, the one another passages, you're not doing any of them. You're back and forth and hardly talking to anyone and don't have time to suffer with somebody or rejoice when somebody is honored. Maybe you need to dial back a little bit and chillax, chill out, hang out, walk around on a Sunday and talk to people, speak the truth in love to people, minister the word in conversation and in life. And that takes slowing down a bit. So some of us are wired to be busy, and that's a good thing. But we need to make sure that it's threaded and laced with love and listening and comforting and suffering with people. There's a great image uh, from the book, The Trellis and the Vine. That is the name of the book. Trellis work. You go into the ministry fair over here. I encourage you after the service, make your way over there. There's a lot of cool stuff happening in that room represented there. It's all trellis work, signs and spreadsheets and sign-up lists and names for things and times, trellis. 
on which we hope and pray the vine of spiritual life in Christ grows and is growing for sure. A couple of the books are out of the Resource Center, I believe. So if you're kind of interested in thinking through ministry and how all that works, our elders and our deacons here at our church have read that book and I commend it to you. It may be that you're really, really involved and you're involved really up close with the body. But with a scalpel in your hand, you're hacking the thing to pieces. You're here, you're on the property. You're here whenever the door is open. You're making a mess. You're, divide, you're, you're pitting parts against other parts. Even this week, you've whispered in an email and a conversation a subtle line to undermine someone's confidence and trust in someone else in this room or in one of our leaders, one of our elders, a ministry leader. None of that is helpful. There is a way to deal, there is a way to deal with sin. There is a way to, way to deal with the brokenness that we have. It's called confrontation, one-on-one, Matthew 18. We're very committed to that here. And you've seen that at work. So let's stick with it. Put away the scalpel. Dial back a little bit. Be ministered to, minister the word to others. Keep the peace and the bond of the spirit. All right, when all that happens, Christ ascends. He gives gifts. These gifts, which are people, equip the church, the body, every part for ministry. Everyone's at busy ministering the word, speaking truth and love to one another. And the body grows. This is how growth in the body is meant to happen. God has designed it this way. When leaders equip, the members serve. God is about growing his people in number for sure. We're to go and make disciples of all nations, but we're to go baptizing them into the body and teaching them to obey all that Christ has commanded, aren't we? So he cares about number, but certainly quality. Look closely at verses 15 and 16. We're going to read the verse and then we're going to strip out a few clauses and look at it more closely. Speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body being joined and held together by what every joint with which which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Okay, we've learned about member participation, whole body involvement. Let's take out those two clarifying clauses here. Verses 15 and 16. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, dot, 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 makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. On the night before his death, Jesus prayed that we would be one as he and his father are one and that we would be sanctified in truth. And as we speak the truth to one another in love, as we speak the word of God to one another, We're built up and mature and made more one. The body builds itself up in love. Isn't this neat? It builds itself up in love as it's united to its head. Well, Paul Tripp also has a book called How People Change. It's another one of these in which he asks a good question. What are some of the common obstacles that hinder redemptive relationships from developing in our lives? I'm going to ask a make a few suggestions. I think he makes them and they're very good. We'll post them to the blog this week. The busyness of life, keeping relationships distant and casual. A total immersion in friendships that are activity and happiness based. A conscious avoidance of relationships as too scary or messy. A formal commitment to church activities with no real connection to people. One-way ministry-driven friendships in which you always minister to others but never allow others to minister to you. Self-centered, meet-my-felt-needs relationships that keep you always receiving but seldom giving. A private, independent, just me and God approach to the Christian life. 
or theology as a replacement for relationship, knowing God as a life of study and not pursuing him and his people. So that's the plan for our unity, the structure, the process that brings it about according to God's purposes. Well, last, the goal of our unity, two answers to this question. First is maturity. Look with me at how Paul describes the goal here. In verse 13, he says, he's building the body in order until we attain the full unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Listen, he's piling these on. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, but by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. We usually think about faith as like the feeling thing and knowledge as the head thing. Well, here, unity of faith, that's a content thing. That's a what we believe thing together. What we confess we believe together. Knowledge of the Son of God is the knowledge of our hearts of God and Christ. The total thing our maturity is. This is what a healthy body leads toward. Doctrinal unity is at the center of what unity means. We're united around the truth, around the scriptures. And all of this is so that we may no longer be children. Who wants a baby body? You want an adult body for your church. It's possible that as a church grows, that it becomes more of a baby. If the leadership see fit to teach at a lower and a lower and a lower and a lower level in order or just to serve the folks who are showing up without being careful to maintain a standard of truthfulness and clarity, it can happen that you just have one big baby. Church planting, it doesn't have to be that way, and every big church is not that way. Church planting is a way to make sure that we stay thick with truth, thick with the Bible, thick with Christ, and centered on God. We don't want to be a baby. We want to grow up. We don't want to be like a boat tossed about by every wind of doctrine, but like a rock that does not move. Children are given to fads. My kids can't stop for a minute and a half without moving to something else. They don't care what they were playing with five minutes ago. It's the new thing. Adolescence, when I was in junior high, I think the thing was sagging your pants. It might still be in. I don't know where that came from. Someone somewhere was trying to come up with the new cool thing to dress a rock star in to make money selling some big pants. I don't know. Then it was dirty pants, and now it's skinny pants, whatever. Uh, uh, either culture changes, looks change, the pants sagging thing is really, really weird, but fads, childishness, right? You can see it. You can see it. Sometimes we never grow up, and we're given to this spiritually. We're to grow up so that we are immovable. Our rock is Christ, and we're fixed on his word, and that can be the case for a Christian and certainly for a church. It ought to be like a baby or a boat, like an adult, like a rock. And all of it is to maturity in Christ, to the fullness of the stature of him, to the knowledge of Christ. It starts with Christ ascended and everything that happens in this body moves toward him and for him and our maturity in him. And all of this God is doing through Christ for the same reason he does anything he does. And that is for the magnification of his own worth. That's the last word, magnification. Back up one chapter, chapter 3, verses 10 through 11. 
Everything that he says following is for this, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This is according to his eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In our unity, we are saying God is one. There is one Lord. There is one hope. The gospel is powerful to fix our broken, tattered hearts and relationships because we are united once and for all through Christ with God and looking forward to the day when all things will be right together. That is our church. There's a verse in, uh, tucked away in 1 Peter. I commend to you here as we land the plane. 1 Peter 2.9. Write it down. It's one of these verses that takes on more meaning over time. As you read more of the Bible, you realize, oh, wow, that's really cool. Here it is. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In the Old Testament, there was a class of leaders, three of them, prophets, priests, and kings. Priests mediated the presence of God sacrificing along the way because that was what was required for God's people to meet with him and be right with him. Pointing, of course, to Christ's sacrifice. Kings ruled God's people and prophets mediated God's word. Christ is our great high priest who gave a sacrifice once and for all and paid for all of our sins at one time on the cross and his work is finished. Pray that you're trusting in him. He's a great high priest. He is also a king. He's a risen Lord, ascended to the right hand of God on his throne, seated there, ruling sovereignly, directing and ruling his people. He is also the prophet who reveals God to us perfectly in himself and in his word. In him, we are a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, ministering the word to one another, mediating his rule, and mediating his presence to the world. So, dear brothers and sisters, as those who have been called out of darkness and into God's marvelous light, I therefore urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace.